I'm ready. You've got questions. We've got answers. Phone lines are open. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, it is one of my favorite moments of the week. You've got questions. We've got answers on our Friday broadcast, 866-348-7884, number to call. If the question, the comment is appropriate for Christian radio, then this is the number to call. Anything in any area of expertise I have, anywhere I can help you, anywhere you want to challenge me, question me, 866-348-7884. I'm not going to focus on this. I'm just going to mention it briefly. But, but if, if true, if true, this in one short sentence sums up the crazy extreme leftist PC culture of the day. A headline in Daily Mail says, revealed, Google vice president told employees to stop using the word family. After staff complained the term was offensive, homophobic, and excluded unmarried people without children, animals, and those with multiple trans-feminine partners. In quotes. In quotes. And apparently this is all documented. Boy, in one moment you see how crazy the culture is. 866-348-7884. Uh, just getting info from our first callers, and I'll be going to the phones momentarily. I met with a great family a week ago. Well, this a week ago tomorrow, so last Saturday. The activist mommy and her family. So her husband, medical doctor, great couple, just getting to know them, introduced by some other friends. Activist mommy's been on my radio show. I've forwarded some of her posts. They've got 10 kids. Only nine were there. But not not just that the kids were well-behaved kids, but they were full of life. They were animated, not like this cult-like brainwash. I mean, they they were vibrant. They were interested. They had convictions. It was it was neat to see. And I said to the husband and wife, I said, you know, for brainwashed kids suffering under the male patriarchy with all this toxic masculinity, they're doing pretty well. All right, eight six six three four truth. We start in Seagrove, North Carolina. Todd, you are on the line of fire. Well, thank you, Dr. Brands. Good to talk to you again. Yes, sir. Um, um, this is more of a curious archaeology question I have. Um, I know that uh, after the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, uh, that they were commanded to take 12 stones out of the river and set up a memorial in Gilgal, you know, for future generations to remember what happened. And I'm just curious if you had ever heard whether that particular memorial had ever been discovered. Uh, to my knowledge... Absolutely not. I actually was wondering about that, Todd, when I was reading through Joshua most recently, thinking, isn't that interesting? But no, there's there's absolutely no record of something found that was that 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 would have been major. That would be big. That would be something widely discussed. There is an archaeological study Bible and in that archaeological study Bible. They keep you updated on all these latest finds. There's an apologetic study Bible the same kind of thing as well. Uh, but no, sir, uh, 
to my knowledge, and I'm 99.99% sure of this, nothing has been found like that. There's a ton of stuff that has been found, and we leave for Israel in, what, uh, less than two weeks. So our tour group will be stunned to see how much has been found, but but not that. 866-34-TRUTH. Hey, my son-in-law, Jimmy, if, you, if you've just joined in on our live Facebook feed, hey, man, shout out. To one of my favorite sons-in-law in the world, 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, we go to Salisbury, North Carolina, Dallas. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brian. How you doing? Thank you for taking my call. Doing well. Thank you. Um, I'm, uh, I'm 21 years old, and you know, I'm just, I just wanted to get your uh, 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 take, some, some words of wisdom, so to speak, uh, on you know, growing up, being a, becoming a godly man, preparing for marriage. Uh, you know, that's something that's been on my mind. I'll, I know that I want that, but I don't want to idolize it. So what, how would you, how, what are some, some things that you would, uh, some tips you'd give me to move forward and to grow uh, and to become, become a godly man? Um, yes, you know, sir. Pursuing a career and just all that, you know, the whole, the whole deal, you know? Yeah, so uh, I, I'm so glad you're asking these questions, sir. First and foremost, you need to be just that, a godly man. In, in other words, career, success, popularity, income, all those things are quite secondary to what matters most. So you want to put down deep spiritual roots. That means that, that you want to really have quality time with God in your life, that being is more important than doing. That's always a lesson challenging to learn for me to this day, because I'm such a doer. But being with the Lord in a quality way, quality time with Him in prayer, quality time in the Word, and then really praying over your own character, praying that, that you would be like Jesus. I, in my early days in the Lord, first couple of years, every day at the end of the day, I would, I would pray through various passages, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 and other passages for qualities of love, or, or 2 Peter 1, it talks about growing in certain ways. I'd pray those things over my life and, and really put an emphasis on character, Again, achievement is secondary to character. So I don't mean get super introspective because then you, it's be very easy to become self-condemning, you know? Uh, so I right. don't mean getting super introspective, but Lord, I want to please you. I, I want to I be godly. I, I want to reflect your love and your compassion and, and your, your goodness and want to love holiness and, and learn to receive grace, learn to receive forgiveness. God is quick to forgive and merciful. And then walk in humility that I find someone that is able to receive correction, uh, that's the kind of person I want to pour into because that's a characteristic of wisdom, that, that the wise man is corrected and learns more and thanks you. Uh, I remember years ago there was a young man I, I really had to bring a strong word of correction to. He was an older student in my ministry school, and it was a very strong word, and I spoke it to him, and he smiled and said, rebuke a wise man and he'll love you. Thank you. And I thought, that's the kind of guy I can work with. So uh, you have your convictions, you're firm on things, but then you, you want to you be one that's open to receive correction. If I'm secure in the Lord, then it, it's not going to be hard for me to receive input and correction from, from others. When I'm insecure, then I'm going to be more defensive in things. And then the last thing, when it comes to marriage— you want to determine to be a blessing to the woman you marry. Yes, 
you you are blessed by having a godly partner. Yes, you you are blessed by by being married to the person that you love. But you want your emphasis to be how I can be a blessing to that woman, uh, how I can nurture her, how how I can serve her. And as you do that, I just look at it like watering a plant. You can criticize that plant, yell at that plant, you're not everything I want you to be, and it's only going to shrivel. Or you could water that plant, and the plant will grow. So if, if you're a godly, solid man, dependable, you keep your word, and, and you're sensitive to your wife's needs, she'll be secure, and she'll honor you, and she'll support you. So those are right. some words of wisdom and counsel for you. And what would you say about um, not, not idolizing marriage, uh, you know, in, in the pursuit of it? You know, uh, putting how much time is appropriate to put towards that uh, in regards to the whole picture? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, Dallas, it's, it's impossible to give a, a specific time to because how many hours do you work your job, how involved you in church or ministry or other things, other things like that. But uh, you want to pursue the Lord earnestly and then let things fall into place naturally for marriage, or you don't want to be obsessed with, I got to have a wife, I got to have a wife. I, I went to the Lord, I got married young, but I got saved at 16 and a half. And then my friends started marrying pretty young and, you know, 18, 19, 20. And I, uh, so I was praying uh, regularly for a couple of years, Lord, give me the one you have for me when you have her for me. And then uh, give me patience until you do. And then God brought Nancy to our church miraculously after two and a half years I was saved and then brought us together. Hey, may the Lord guide you and give you grace. Thanks for asking these great questions. Uh, Jim asks over on our Facebook thread, have you covered the fact that many churches only allow prophecy for encouragement? Yeah, I've addressed it many a time. Uh, uh, just put out a tweet yesterday say, or a day before saying, if you're really going to bring prophetic words, then they're not all going to be positive and happy. It's based on a misapprehension that New Testament prophecy is always positive. Uh, it fails to realize that rebuke is, is from the heart of God and the love of God, that love warns, and that 1 Corinthians 14.3 doesn't just say positive, 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 positive. It does mention edification, does mention exhortation, and, and that can bring with it words of correction. Now, I would limit those types of things for senior leaders or those who are truly prophetic, and not just the general operation of the gift of prophecy, but for sure, uh, through the New Testament, prophecy comes with warning, prophecy comes with correction, and always, because it's from the heart of God, it comes with life. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Anchorage, Alaska. David, welcome to the line of fire. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Michael Brown. Um, You're welcome. It's been great listening to you. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I guess I have a general question. I'm Alaska Native, and uh, I've decided, I mean, I grew up kind of Christian with my family, but after going through some stuff, like, you have to figure out for yourself yes, what sir. you believe in. You know, I decided there's no way that Jesus couldn't have rose from the dead. So, uh, but I did struggle with some stuff, um, but I have to take the truth. So I was wondering, um, I don't think the gospel came to Alaska Natives for the longest time. And uh, and I think when it did come to them, and I know this, you know, it wasn't Christ-like, but it was kind of forced upon them. Mm -hmm. um, so I was just wondering about those Alaska Natives who never knew um, the name of Jesus, because they believed in some creator, 
um, you know, creator of the world. Right. I was just wondering what your opinion on that was. Yeah, David, it's it's a weighty question. And in many ways, the the most weighty question that you could ask, uh, it's a question yeah. that, that religious Jews, you know, this is going to come up because they lived in a certain environment where the only Christianity they knew was far from, from biblical. And then, yeah. you know, what about a sincere Muslim that all they're exposed to is the Quran or... Uh, so this this is not a question to be answered lightly, but there is a serious and solid answer to it. So we come back on the other side of the break. I want to address your question. Phone lines are jammed, but I'm going to get to everyone that's on hold. We're going to get to you. 866-34-TRUTH. David, I'm glad your faith is secure, but let's address this important question on the other side of the break. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH, the number to call. So, David, in, in Anchorage, uh, let, me, let me respond to you on a few levels, okay? Number one, we know that many people are offered the gospel and refuse it. So through history... That's been the norm. Uh, God comes with his light and people reject the light because they love darkness. So even, even if the most wonderful gospel message was preached to your ancestors, Alaskan natives, native Alaskans, many would have rejected the message anyway. So we, we understand that sometimes we have this idealized thing. If only people had heard, they would have all believed, but that, that's, not, that's not the way it's ever been. That's the first thing. The second thing is that God's ways are perfect. God, when we stand before God, we're going to see he's perfectly just and he's full of compassion. And, and that, that, means, that means that whatever he does is good. So I wonder, David, about Jewish ancestors of mine. I wonder about rabbis that seem so devout and wanting to please God, you know, trembling over everything to, to want to please him and do things the right way, uh, you know, are they lost? Are they in hell? I simply leave it with God. I know that, here's what I do know. I know that we all fall short and that on our very best day, we're not good enough. You say, yeah, we understand that. That's why you need the gospel. Okay, uh, agreed. But what about those that didn't have an opportunity to hear it? So I, I don't know what happens to people? I, I, I do know that we're lost without God's mercy. I do know that our sins damn us, that the very best mm-hmm. human being who's ever lived on the planet, talking about human mm-hmm. beings outside of Jesus, uh, have, have all sinned and fallen short and can only be redeemed by the mercy of God. But I don't know. I can't. Did God work in someone's heart in a mysterious way? Did they respond to the light that they had? Uh, through the revelation of nature and through some type of gospel-related message that God embedded in one of their traditions? Is that possible? Someone argue that, but I don't know. So my answer to you is, is a twofold one. Number one, I absolutely know that God is trustworthy. If he loved us enough to send his son for us, that shows his intent is not to condemn the world, but save the world. So that's what I need to know about his heart. In other words, he's more sensitive to this issue than I am. 
On the other mm-hmm. side, I can't, I can't account for everyone, so I leave it to God. You say, isn't that sticking your head in the sand? No, it's not. Because if I try to figure it out, it's probably going to overwhelm me, maybe discourage me, maybe depress me, because I don't have the whole picture. I don't see from God's perspective. Or I'm going to be overly idealistic and just kind of ignore it. So I know it's weighty and difficult, but I don't, I don't have enough information to know what happens to every human being who dies. We assume people are lost without God, which is why we go bring the gospel, why missionaries risk their lives to bring the gospel to people who never heard, because we understand they're lost. Does that mean that no one had the opportunity to turn, that no one responded to God's revelation in nature, that no one had God's laws written on their hearts? That's for God to deal with. So I will go to everyone and to my Jewish people as if they're lost and they need the Messiah. And as far as those who die without ever hearing, without being exposed to the gospel or who are exposed to a totally false gospel, I simply leave them to God knowing that when I stand, and same with, same with my own father who was reading the New Testament, coming to church, listening to be preached, but died without ever making a profession of faith. I have to leave that to my heavenly father knowing that his, he's more compassionate, more perfect than I'll ever be. And whatever he does, when I see it, I'll say that you, what you did was right. What you did was right. Does that, does that make sense to you? Yes. Uh, thank you. It's just, uh, just thinking about it. Um, it's just been, uh, just kind of gets my mind in the twist. So, I uh, really appreciate you uh, taking my call and answering my question. Yeah. And, and again, sir, it's not a cop-out answer. It's a really honest answer and one that comes from learning to trust God because this much I found out, David, that the God who's been so patient with me since I got saved 47 years ago and put up with my folly and, and, and forgave my sins. I mean, since I've been saved and I'm a serious believer, I know how compassionate he is. And I know that whatever sentence he carries out is going to be right. And I'll say, Lord, what you've done is right. And I affirm it. Hey, thank you for the question. And may you, may you grow in your own relationship with the Lord. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to New Brunswick, Canada. Reese, welcome back to the line of fire. Hi, good to be here. How are you today? Very well. Thank you. Good. I was going to ask you about... Uh... King Saul, uh, there's the verse that uh, the Lord sent an evil spirit to torment uh, King Saul. And I was wondering, this kind of goes uh, a little bit hand in hand with the question I asked several weeks ago. Would this be better understood uh, in light of the theology that we have now that the Lord permitted uh, Satan or an evil spirit to torment Saul rather than actually uh, commanding it uh, and sending the, the spirit? Right. So the first thing is we do understand that under Old Testament revelation, this, with the recognition of God being God of all and Lord of all, that in fact, if an evil spirit was tormenting someone like Saul, there was understanding that that God sent it, especially when it was some type of judgment. Uh, But I don't know, honestly, that we would change this from a New Testament perspective, meaning that this was not just harassment. The, the author of 1 Samuel wants us to know that God himself did this. It's a judgment on Saul. So it's, to me, it's all the same if, let's, let's just look at it like this. You've got this, this uh, window and it's closed, okay? And there are these demonic spirits on the other side of this window chafing 
to get through uh, to to attack this brother, but they can't. Mm-hmm. They can't because of God's protection and his grace and his shield. And then this person walks out of God's protection and mercy, or maybe they're a persistent sinner, like 1 Corinthians 5, and they refuse to repent, and they're handed over to Satan. So now God opens that window. Without him opening that window, those demonic spirits could not get through. So yeah, the person did it. It's not, it's not the idea that God just sits around and says, who can I smash? Ooh, I think I'm going to mess up Reese today. Let's send demons to harass him. No, that is so contrary to the nature of the Father. But the idea that God is just sitting passively by saying, ooh, man, Reese loves me and is serving me, but the devil's really after him. I don't see it like that either. So it would be, it's not going to be Reese now, someone else. This person is sinning, walking in disobedience, out of God's mercy, and whether God permits satanic attack or actually, so to say, presses a button for it to happen, he's still God overall. And, mm-hmm. and because it's judgment, I have no, no problem just saying it. That's, that's what happened. That's what's written, and that's mm-hmm. what happened. Okay, makes sense. All right. Thank you for the question. Right. I appreciate it. Yep. Thanks. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Spokane, Washington. Rosalie. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. We love you and pray for you and appreciate you ever so much. Thank you. Regarding the third temple and the book of Joel, do you see that as third temple prophecy? Okay. Uh, which verses in particular are you talking about in the book of Joel? Well, all through the chapters, it keeps referring to the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and any day of the Lord scripture that we've been able to put together always refers to the second coming. Got it. Yeah, no, so that's, yeah, that's actually not the case. And I, I think we spoke fairly recently. You may have uh, gotten, gotten through uh, fairly quickly, but I, I think it was third temple related, if, if correct. Anyway, no, no, day of the Lord spoke of many times when God would visit in judgment uh, in the Bible. And, uh, there are prophecies in Joel that are ultimately future prophecies or prophecies still unfolding, like Joel 2.28 and following, with which Peter quotes in Acts 2.17 and following about this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel about the end-time outpouring in which we continue to live. But no, uh, Day of the Lord, for example, in Amos, you'll see it. It's talking about a time where God comes to visit and bring judgment on his people. There have been many days of the Lord through history. Many days of the Lord in the Old Testament period, days of the Lord in the time in which we live now. These are times where God comes in judgment, where God comes to to straighten things out. And then there is the final day of the Lord, whether it's a 24-hour day or a period of years, there is that final day of the Lord. And where there's overlap there, sometimes the prophet speaking of something imminent in his day but there's going to be a parallel at the end. But most of the Joel references to the temple would be to judgment coming on the temple in his day. There's just debate about when to date Joel. Is he talking about the first temple or the second temple? But in context, that would be the subject matter as opposed to a future third temple, unless the whole prophecy is clearly futuristic. But go through Amos and look at day of the Lord there. You know, woe to you who wait for the day of the Lord. They're thinking, oh, God's going to come and deliver us. Instead, God came and brought judgment. 
So there have been many days of the Lord when God judged northern Israel, when God judged Babylon. These were days of the Lord. When God judged Jerusalem, these were days of the Lord. But there is the final day of the Lord, for example, spoken of in 2 Peter 3, that day of the Lord coming with intensity, that day of the Lord which encompasses the return of Jesus and everything with the establishing of his kingdom. That's something that is still future. And as far as we can understand, that will involve a future third temple when he returns. All right, thank you for the question. 866-34-TRUTH. We just got a short break. And as soon as we come back, we're going straight to your calls. Oh, if you can't get through today, Monday, God willing, Monday, Martin Luther King Day. It's a holiday for many. Well, music's a little loud there. There we go. Uh, I'm going to be opening the phones on Monday. So if you keep trying to get through today and you can't, hopefully Monday we'll take a bunch more calls. Stay with us. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire. Hey, we are so excited. Just a couple days ago, we released Consider This Video Number 6. In fact, we're probably getting pretty close to a million views on the first six videos combined now. The latest asked the question, is it too late for America? Friends, these are highly animated. Uh, young people can watch these old people. They're really effective. The single most effective thing we've done so far as a ministry team in terms of a short message, getting it out, we, we take you through why things are so dire in America, but then going through history with some amazing quotes give reason for hope that it's not too late if the people of God will get desperate. So if you haven't watched it yet, watch, share it with a friend, and I'm sure you'll be blessed. You can watch it on our website, askdrbrown.org. You'll see it right on the homepage or on our YouTube channel. All right, we go to the phones starting in Toronto. Sergio, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Michael Brown. Uh, Happy New Year to you. And yeah, I'll I'll jump into, I have two questions. The second one is a resource question. It should take you like 10 seconds. Okay. But but the other one is, I wanted to ask you about, there's a book that I started listening to. It's Kathy Lee Gifford, The Rock, The Road, and The Rabbi. And I would like to hear your, uh, uh, is this a trustworthy um, Resource? Do you know anything I, about honestly, this book? No, I don't. I don't know anything about it. I'm sorry to say. Maybe. In fact, let me just take take a take a look. No, I. I My honestly, question is because they were saying about a translation that saying that Jesus was not a carpenter, but that actually it, it was a translation from builders. So they assumed that uh, builders were carpenters, but in reality, he was a mason worker. And that it made it's, it's a good book. So it's an encouraging book. It's really good so far, but it's just a little bit weird to have like this translation to be to be wrong, and nobody is not a popular thing. So this, yeah. Uh, so so the the deal there there have been some that tried to argue that it didn't mean carpenter and referred to some other builder. But I'm perfectly at home with the translation carpenter. 
And I, I appreciate, I'm just looking at, at, at the book, which is getting a lot of attention, uh, Messianic Jewish Rabbi Jason Sobel, uh, who, who I've known over the years, uh, contributed to the book. And there, there, are, there are definitely misconceptions that we, we often have, okay? And, and there, there are things that we get wrong, you know, that we, uh, that, that happens all the time. I write about it, uh, you know, a lot of the things in terms of Jewish roots uncover it. But there are plenty of things that, that we're told are wrong. So I'll, I'll just as an example here, uh, where I've got a bunch of different translations up at the same time. Um, yeah, just, just looking, uh, whoops, I misspelled carpenter. That was the problem. Uh, but no, I, I, I'm, I'm perfectly at home with, with, uh, with saying that. And yeah, so for example, if you look in Mark chapter six, verse three, Mark six, three, I'm just going to look at a bunch of different translations here. Uh, so Mark six, three, that's where you'd have it, for example, in the King James version. So, uh, new King James, isn't this the carpenter, NAS isn't this the carpenter, ESV isn't this the carpenter, NIV isn't this the carpenter, TLV, which is a Jewish-based translation, isn't this the carpenter, NET isn't this the carpenter. When you look at, at translation after translation after translation after translation, and they all read it the same way, including translations that have a strong Messianic Jewish background like the TLV, the Tree of Life version uh, that I contributed to as well, you can rest assured that it means carpenter. No reason to to question that. So the rest of the book may be good. I just you know you yeah. you listen to that it's like okay, move on to something else. Yeah, yeah. It was a good. It has a, it has a good image and it was a nice teaching. I, I didn't I didn't take anything negative about it. Yeah, yeah. Jesus but just is, is just dismiss that point. Rubbish. Yeah, be my, comfortable with carpenter. Question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a second question. Uh, I'm interested. Uh, I've been listening to Jeff Durbin. Uh, Apologia Radio. Uh, I'm so interested in in what this guy does. Uh, but I would like to ask you, what would be good resources for me to study the different views on um, the last days? I know he's a post uh, post millennialist, and I would like to hear kind of like uh, what would be good. Yeah. So you? so yeah. So real quick, um, you can get a book called Four Views on the Millennium. Four Views on the Millennium. And maybe it's updated to five now, but I believe four views on the millennium and just look it up under that title. That'll give you a good idea. If you want something that expresses my viewpoint in, in some depth, uh, there is Israel, the church in the last days by Dan Juster and Usher in trader. So the last name's Juster and in trader, I N T A R T E R Israel, the church in the last days a book that will give you various views, four views on the millennium. And then the book that Professor Craig Keener and I co-authored coming out March 19th, Not Afraid of the Antichrist. So that's Brown and Keener, Not Afraid of the Antichrist throughout March 19th, while we don't believe in a pre-trib rapture. Hey, thank you for calling. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Sam in Florida. You are on the line of fire. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Um, I really enjoyed your recent debate with the Unitarian. Yes, um, thank you. Yeah, I wanted to ask a question uh, related to what the last caller just asked. Uh, really, I was listening to Jeff Durbin not too long ago, mm-hmm. and um, he was speaking on his last 
on, on the last days and um, really it's, it's, it's about eschatology and um, he was saying things that are really foreign to me such as the second return of Christ already happened in 70 AD and there, there were a whole bunch of things that like it, it just went against what I was traditionally taught like I, I thought Christ well not ju- not just you yeah with, with all respect to Jeff and I, I appreciate so much good that, that he does uh, but n- number one, this would have been very foreign to the disciples and very foreign to the, the early church leaders uh, who were looking forward to the return of Jesus long after the temple was, was destroyed. That's one thing. I, I would imagine Jeff is a partial preterist and believes there's still something future and a new heavens and new earth. But I, I debated Michael Sullivan. He really pursued me to debate. So we debated in November, I think. And there was a problem with the professional video that we took we're trying to use the live stream video that we have and and uh on our facebook page but that that view is is completely out in left field that we're already in the new heavens and the new earth that we're already in the time when death is no more i mean just crazy as as the student said to me afterwards absolutely ridiculous view that's full preterism that everything all prophecy is already fulfilled and that uh, that view really only goes back to around the 1970s, to, to be honest. So it's, it's and some will say it's it's a completely heterodox in that it says the resurrection has already passed. So here, uh, since I don't know exactly what Jeff believes and and I respect him as a colleague. So let, let's put that aside and just ask some simple questions. Uh, have the dead in Christ been physically resurrected? No. Have have we been caught up to meet the Lord in the air and our physical bodies glorified. No, no. Have, have we yet entered into the realm where death ceases on the earth? No, we could go down a whole list of things. And remember, Paul says that when he returns, we're going to be changed. Have we yet seen the full in gathering from the nations? No. Have we yet seen Israel turning to the Lord? No. So these are all things prophesied in scripture still to happen. Did something momentous happen in the year 70? Yeah, but but that was not the second coming. Did God come in judgment at that time as he's come in judgment many times, as I referenced earlier, the many days of the Lord in history? Sure, he came in judgment. Sure. But what does Paul say? We're looking for the glorious appearing. That's what we're longing for. They weren't longing for the destruction of Jerusalem. They were longing to see Jesus. John says when he appears, we'll be like him because we're going to see him as he is. Paul says, 2 Thessalonians 1, he's going to come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel. And at that time, we'll receive relief from persecution. That hasn't happened yet. None of this has happened yet. So absolutely without question, we are still looking forward to the return of Jesus, just as the disciples were, those that lived after the destruction of the temple, just like the early church was speaking futuristically about the return of Jesus. We continue to look with great anticipation for his return and do what we know how to do in living obedient lives and sharing the gospel so as to hasten that day. Right. Thank you very much, Dr. Brown. You are very, very welcome. 866 three. For truth. Hey, listen, I know that sometimes we hear something all our lives. We, we grow up with it. We're used to it. And to hear something new, we've got to kind of wrap our minds around it. But when you have to start, start taking, say as a full preterist was, and I'm trusting Jeff Durbin's not that, 
And you have to start taking whole passages and truths and turn them upside down and have them mean something totally opposite to what they mean. It's another reason I reject the so-called biblical Unitarian position because you have these whole passages and sections that need to be turned upside down and made to mean something other than what the author is clearly saying. That, to me, bankrupts the whole theology. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Bruce in Belgrade, Montana. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Um, I have a Hebrew question for you uh, based on Leviticus 18.22 okay. and Isaiah 66.17. Two, uh, first one, of course, is dealing with homosexuality. Yep. Yep. The second one is dealing with food. Mm-hmm. Two different Hebrew words, tueba, if you'd pardon my Hebrew, and sheketz in Isaiah. But both translated as abomination in all the English translations I've read. So from a Hebrew perspective, how do you distinguish the Hebrew from the English translations yeah, using so, the same so word? The, the difference between toeva and, and sheketz. So you, you were pretty close with your pronunciations. Number one, we understand that toeva uh, can refer to something that is morally offensive that is morally detestable, uh, or it can refer to something that is ritually detestable. So when you read Leviticus 18.22, when you realize there's a death penalty associated for it in Leviticus 20, when God judges the Canaanite nations for those very sins, you understand this is something morally reprehensible, just like idolatry and other sins mentioned in the passage. Sheketz is detestable. You normally wouldn't translate it as abomination, and uh, I'm just going to look during the break at different translations, but but the words are the words are a little bit different and should be translated differently. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much, friends, for joining us. Hey, a reminder, we would love to have you as part of our support team. If our ministry, this radio broadcast, our videos, articles, all that we put out and offer to you for free, if it's worth to you a dollar or day or more, then become one of our torchbearers. I know for some that's a jump. Others, you could do that three, four, five times a day. Wouldn't even feel it. Join our support team. Become a torchbearer. Go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Click on Donate, and you'll see the monthly option. First, read where your money goes, what we're doing, and then all the ways we pour back into you, and then join our support team. We need a whole bunch of you to do so in the days ahead. It'll, It'll help us immensely. And the best thing is you share and the reward of all those that we reach. So what's interesting in Isaiah 66, 17 in Hebrew, Sheketz is actually mentioned in the list of, of unclean foods that are eaten as, as if it itself was the name of a food. So yeah, for example, the NET translates it disgusting creatures like mice, etc. Uh, you have the NLT uh, feasting on pork and rats and other detestable meats. Uh, so there, there are quite a bunch of, 
of uh, different ways of reading this. Some say detestable, some say disgusting, some say unclean, some say abomination. So it does reflect the fact that the words are related and yet different. All right, thank you for the, and by the way, it's going to happen with many words, English, Hebrew, any language that you have similar words with different nuances. How do you convey that in different contexts? 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Wendy in, no, we don't. Uh, let's go to Jose in, no, we don't. Whoa, somebody got a line or two open. Uh, let's go to Tony in Greensboro, North Carolina. Thanks for calling the line of fire. How you doing, Dr. Brown? Hope all is well with you. All is well. Thank you, sir. Good. I listen to you daily. And yesterday, uh, I was able to call back in, but a guy called in, and I don't necessarily remember what he was speaking on, and I didn't agree. It was talking about, I guess he was talking about race in the Bible or something. Yeah, and yeah. he said that it was something in the Bible about darker-skinned people, and you said oh, yeah. you'd gone all over the Bible and nothing in there. I was wondering if he was alluding to possibly Numbers chapter 12 when Mary yeah, yeah. And, and Aaron were picking at Moses' wife because she was a Cushite, and, and maybe he understood exactly. that, or he oh, was yeah, misinterpreting yeah. that. Yeah, it was actually oh, a, okay. woman, a woman who called, and of course the reference was to Numbers 12 that Moses married oh, okay. a Cushite woman. Now, is it referring to Zipporah, who is Midianite, and there might have been overlap with Cushite, uh, or right. was it a second wife? So let's say it was a second wife, a Cushite. So we can be relatively sure that that is a portion of northern Africa, so so south of of uh, of Egypt, and that yeah. those people there would be traditionally black, African, however you want to describe them. So there's no argument right. about that that there's intermarriage, oh, okay, right. that there are dark-skinned people among the people of Israel, people maybe darker-skinned than you, and then over history, lighter-skinned than me, but all marrying in and being part of it. But she said that the King James says that he married a woman darker, meaning he himself is oh, yeah, dark. Yeah. And I said, no, yeah, no, 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 the, the, oh, okay. that verse never occurs. That's A. And, <laughs> and B, the word darker, well, I just checked after. I knew the verse wasn't there. I mean, I knew that. But when I checked darker, that, that word darker doesn't ever occur in the King James right. for whatever reason. Okay, so. Yeah, I'd missed that first portion of that. But I'm like you, Dr. Brown. Let's just forget color. My pastor said Sunday, everybody's going to be surprised what uh, Jesus looks like. That's why he doesn't <laughs> have any pictures in the church or either baptism. He said, let yeah. somebody can draw a man with hair of wool and eyes like fire and brass feet and all of that. So he said, we'll all be surprised. He said, I don't care what you look like. This better be Jesus. Yeah, and, and see, here's, here's the thing. It, it has been a problem when he's been wrongly presented. In other words, right. when we try to make him like a European, blonde-haired, yeah. blue-eyed Caucasian, so people yeah. forget yeah. the Jewish roots of the faith, or they yeah. forget the Middle Eastern roots of the faith, or that could look like one of your slave masters 300 years right. ago. And so yeah. the, the, yeah. Per, the, the misperceptions are important. But here's what I think about if, if I grew up in a white family and even though I had black friends as in a more white community, so that's more normal to me. If I think of Jesus white, right. white that's kind of normal. If you grew up in a black community, mainly black friends, you think of Jesus black, that's more normal. It was, we're all seeing it through a particular lens. And the thing is, what we, when we relate to him, we don't relate to him as a color. We, don't re, we right. relate to him as our savior, our redeemer, the one we love. And if, and if when we see him face to face, 
he looks more like you or more like someone else. Who? It doesn't matter. What matters is that we're gonna we're gonna fall at his feet and worship him. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, God bless you, amen. Tony, and amen to what your pastor you, Dr. said. Brown. You're very Thank welcome. You, okay. All right. Bye bye. Eight six six three four truth. Let's go to Portland, Oregon. Eric, welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Doctor Brown. Um, I'll be brief and just listen after I ask. Um, I was okay. reading through Jeremiah towards the end of Jeremiah, and I was reading a couple different verses where God was saying He's going to judge the nation surrounding Israel because they trim the corner of their hair. And I just was hoping that you could speak to that. You know, does that mean that we should be tr- we shouldn't be trimming the corner of our hair today because God was judging? Israel, nations other than Israel for that? Yeah, so actually, Eric, thank you for the question. Uh, Number one, in Leviticus 19, the prohibition to Israel about cutting hair a certain way, it seems to be a disfiguring thing, that they were not to disfigure themselves with their hair or or disfigure themselves in mourning. So so that's, that's one thing. But certainly there was never a judgment on the nations. In other words, that that if a man cut his beard, that God was going to judge that nation. So these would have to do with presumably disfiguring idolatrous practices, uh, not simply a hairstyle or, oh, no, I should, should I not shave? Okay, you, got, you have a mustache. It's not like a holier to have a mustache. No, that's not the issue at all. So it's a great question. But the types of things God would judge foreign nations – for would be things that tied in with idolatry, and then out of that were demonic disfiguring, etc. All right, thank you for asking the question. 866-342. All right, we try to reconnect with Jose in Southern California. Glad you're able to get right back on with us. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, hello, Dr. Brown. God bless you, and God bless your ministry. I had a question regarding um, the Trinity. It's more like clarification regarding mm-hmm. their relationships. It yeah. was a question that was brought up, and it's always brought up when I speak to my friends that are um, their oneness. You know, mm-hmm. like they have the oneness theology, and then yeah. there's another group of people of my friends that they are they're in the Hebrew roots mo- movement, and they yeah. also have this oneness type of theology. But then the question is, is this? That it always rises up, and is this? And but for me asking you, this is me bringing it to you, so you could bring yes, me sir. some clarification. Yeah. I believe, okay, the Father loves the Son, and we understand that the Son also loves the Father. And my, the question is whether we believe in a God that and, um, has three separate and distinct um, awareness. Like, I don't want to say minds, because I know people would be like, well, we, we can't say God has three minds. But my question is, 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 does God, our God, um, it's, I, we know it's three persons, but are they each individually self-aware, self-conscious, and is it okay to say that our God does have, uh, in, a, in a sense, three minds, because there are three different persons, and or how can we reconcile... Yeah, so here, here's what God I'd say. Of, yeah. yeah, with all respect, I would say that those are... Those are fair questions for human beings to ask, but human beings treading where we don't necessarily get to tread, meaning uh, 
oh, okay, the, the New Testament speaks of the mind of the Spirit, right? In Romans 8, that he who searches the hearts knows the, the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes according to the will of God. It would be as if the Spirit has a mind and the Father understands the mind of the Spirit. But to me, we're still using human terminology to speak of God. In other words, when we speak of God having a mind, does that mean he have a, does, does he have a brain? The way we have a brain, you know, how does, how does his mind operate Amen. when we yeah, say those things? A... So, so to me, I, I'm simply going to lay out, and, and others may be more inclined to get into this type of talk. It's just, just not me because I don't find the, the language so much in Scripture. What's clear to me, there's one God, one God only, and he's eternal before all things and will exist uh, uh, after all things, that, that he alone is eternal God. That's one thing. And he alone in himself possesses immortality. And then the second thing is he's complex in his unity. And as he has made himself known to us, he has made himself known to us as Father, Son, Spirit. So we can only say three persons with one being. And that there is distinction between them so that the Father can send the Son, the Son can send the Spirit, the Spirit can testify about the Son. The Son can glorify the Father. And yet, in eternity, in Revelation, the 22nd chapter, it says his servants will see him, and they will serve him. They'll see his face, and it speaks of God and the Lamb, and yet only speaks of, of one throne. John, the 16th chapter, Jesus says this, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That, to me, destroys a modalist position or a Hebrew roots oneness position or a oneness Pentecostal position or a so-called biblical Unitarian position. I'll stay with God's holy, complex triunity.